the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to my mommy and her friends on Trails and Testimonies. Come on, y'all. Let's go. Welcome to Trails and Testimonies. My name is Kim Fitz. You can follow me on Instagram or you can follow Trails and Testimonies on Facebook. On the last episode, we had the beautiful privilege of chatting with Brittany Deal. And this time around, we get to chat with her husband, Morgan Deal, as we continue to hike at High Falls down in Jackson. It is just south of Atlanta and a beautiful hike with an amazing waterfall. And we hiked just south of that. So strap on your hiking boots and let's start chatting with Morgan about God's timing. Within about a year of us meeting in her previous relationship, they were in, I guess, a rocky spot. And a complete stranger came up to her and gave her a card that said, in his timing or in God's timing. And and that was all it said. And the woman didn't have an explanation. And she just gave it to Brittany and went about her business. And Brittany's never seen her since. And at that time, Brittany had no idea why this lady was giving it to her. In hindsight, speaking with her testimony previously, she forgot to mention that, but that was just another example of all things work in God's timing, period. Every single part of it. And your story and the timing starts out when you were a kid as well, and you used to go to church every Wednesday, every Sunday. You guys were always there. Yeah. I grew up Southern Baptist. We were there every Sunday morning, most Sunday evenings. My mother was the librarian at the church. My dad sang in the choir off and on growing up, but they were both believers. My dad, most of my life, was an active alcoholic up until I was about 24, 23, somewhere in there. He's been sober for approximately 10 years, but he went to five or six treatment centers around Georgia while I was growing up. And so in those intermittent periods, we wouldn't be as involved at the church. We had incidents At home, my dad was never verbal or physically abusive to my mother and I, but I've always had a very loose tongue, and there were times growing up where I would let him have it, and I would think that my wrath and anger was justified. Because of his actions. Because of his actions. I I thought that he deserved it. Those moments really hurt looking back. But me and my dad have actually reconciled. And praise God, and praise God that he's sober. That's incredible. So I... I became a believer in Jesus Christ when I was 14. I was at a a summer camp in Alabama, and uh, I remember feeling God tugging at my heartstrings. I understood what he had done on the cross, what I had done and what I could not do, and that the only atonement was his son, Jesus Christ. And so I came to believe in him as my personal Lord and Savior. I truly believe that I did receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior then, but I didn't make him my I didn't make him my master, I guess. Like, I knew I was saved from my sin eternally, but I didn't make him my master or my savior here on earth at that point. Like, he wasn't priority. Yeah, he wasn't a priority. I was number one. It was me, me. Uh, Like I said, I was at church every Sunday and Wednesday, but I was 
very focused on being popular, being funny, chasing girls, uh, occasionally partying. I do remember the first time I ever tried alcohol. It was, I think, the last day of eighth grade. And I don't remember, like, loving it or hating it. I just remember, like, I felt like I melted inside. And I didn't, like, become a heavy drinker or anything at a really young age. Thank God. I finished high school and was going to junior college. I was 19. And I started just one weekend. I felt horrible. I was on a, a fall youth trip. And every 30 minutes, I demanded that we pulled over because I had to pee so bad that I was in pain. I would get to the cafeteria of this place. It was like three days. And I would drink an 8-ounce glass of water, an 8-ounce glass of chocolate milk, an 8-ounce glass of regular milk, an 8-ounce glass of orange juice, an 8-ounce thing of Sprite, 8-ounce thing of cola. And I could not quench my thirst. And then I would immediately run to the bathroom in pain. I could not sleep. I was sweating. I was getting blurry vision. I felt my heart racing, like my skin crawling. And uh, my youth pastor was like, man, that sounds like diabetes. No one in my immediate or extended family has type 1 diabetes. But uh, I went to the doctor when I got home. My blood sugar was 417, which uh, according to what scale you're looking at, you're sh- it should be like 80 to 110 or 70 to 120 or something. Wow. And the, the lady was like, you can either start taking this pill and probably be okay for like six months or you can go and go check yourself into the er so i went and got my bag and went to the er and and, how old uh, are you at this point i was 19 at this point okay and um like i said healthy as an ox up until now Uh, it was all kind of a a flash like i do remember i was laying in the hospital bed and i had some friends come and some family and i remember i had my bible because i was reading it and i just remember thinking like god's going to use this somehow this makes zero logical sense i don't have family history God, you're going to use this. You're in control. You're going to reach people through my weakness. That was kind of my over overarching mentality at that point, and it was a lot to take in over the next few months of learning how to relive life, if you will. And I became very stringent on exercise and diet. I didn't drink any alcohol for six months. And then I moved off to college and became very independent, and then I started getting a lot more involved with the party scene But I pretty much abandoned church. In hindsight, I realized, you know, this is 10, 15 years later, that when I was in college and I was drinking those periods, I was always wondering why, like, the guy beside me was still in his first beer and I was on, like, my third. And, like, why weren't we pre-gaming? Why did we wait till 10 o'clock to go to a bar? Let's go at 6. And it was always, let's get drunk, let's act the fool. And I always got sick. This was at this point when I had type 1 diabetes. And it, so you knew that it was a horrible idea. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And, uh, but I just kept repeating these patterns because in my mind I was having fun and I was, you know, young. And although I had this autoimmune disease, I was still invincible. I finished school and then so I had some roommates who lived with me. I bought my house and we were all really close. And we used to have these things called Sunday night family meals, basically, and we'd go eat at Chili's. We'd sit at the bar, we'd watch the Braves or the Falcons or whatever the sport was in season, and uh, I started getting liquor drinks on the rocks double, and then I was drinking one before we went to dinner, and then when we got home, we might have another beer or whatever and play video games or something, and I was sneaking them in my room, and then these guys moved out to kind of pursue their dreams, whether it be grad school or getting married. But I just jumped off. I mean, I just absolutely jumped off the deep end. And one thing in recovery that we learn is it's 
sometimes it's hard to really identify when you cross that really gray area and you become an addict or an alcoholic. Again, I don't know when that day was, but at some point I started drinking every day back in about 2011, and I drank more or less uh, every day from then until 2018. I was let go from three public accounting firms in middle Georgia for uh, just not showing up to work. And how old were you at this point? Uh, this was between the time I was 26 and about 32, yeah, somewhere in there. And is your dad sober? At yeah, this so point? my dad actually got sober within 12 months of me crossing that gray line and becoming a full-blown alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And uh, his light bulb was he had pancreatitis, and then he was given a 50-50 chance on a cancer of some kind. I can't remember which one it was. But he also had ulcerated colitis and had to have his colon taken out. And, like, all these things happened. One of the doctors was like, hey, man, if you drink again, you're going to die. And uh, like I said, my dad had been to like five or six treatment centers. He had given recovery programs a shot. And like everybody's journey is different. When the doctor said that to him, he hadn't had a drink since then. God got my dad sober because he knew that he had to be there for his son. And that's pretty powerful. So I went from drinking Thursday, Friday, Saturday to now I was drinking every night of the week. If I was working out of town, I would stop at the liquor store out of town to pick up something to drive home to drink while I was driving home. And then when I got back, pick up another one to drink myself to sleep. Then it got to where I was uh, in the mornings going by the gas station and getting like a beer or something to settle my stomach and to calm the shakes. Mm. And then it got to where I would not go to work sometimes Monday through Friday. And, um... I let that all out in the fall of 2012, and I told my employer, I was like, hey, look, man, like, something's wrong with me and my drinking. I haven't been to work in two days. I need help. The next night, my dad and I went to our first AA meeting together, and uh, I said, I'm an alcoholic. I was given three opportunities at that firm. I couldn't stay away from drinking. I mean, as soon as my dad left, within a few days, I was drinking, you know, again every night. So I got let go from that job. I also, in that six-month period before that, had started seeing a psychiatrist who had prescribed me some benzos to treat anxiety. And I told them that I drank, but I didn't tell them how much I drank. This is probably like the darkest point in my life. I did not understand the dangers of mixing certain drugs and alcohol. There were multiple occasions where I would call friends or family late in the evening, and I had been drinking and either taking this drug as I had been prescribed or just doing other things with it that I shouldn't have been doing, I would go into this dark voice and I would say that I was possessed by a demon. I remember doing it a couple of times, but that was really scary because I was acting that way. And I remember I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would I would hear things and I would see shadowy figures in my room on those nights where I was doing all that. Yeah, that was that was pretty crazy. So anyways, I was... I have chill um, So I got fired from that job day after Christmas. I didn't work for six months. I took $30,000 out of um, investment funds that my dad had started. And I blew through every penny of that on my mortgage and alcohol and (laughs) fast food and whatnot. And uh, I got another job. I stayed there for six months, got fired again for the exact same reasons, not going to work. None of it's important. It's king alcohol or nothing. At that point, I got let go again in October 2013. Then I met with a different doctor who said, you need to wean yourself off those pills and never take one again. And I did that. 
the alcohol I could not stop, but the pill thing I did. Christmas Eve at my uncle's house in front of about 45 people. I had been sober for five or six days, and I had been off this pill for five or six days, and I went into a seizure talking to my aunt. And I don't obviously I don't remember any of it. I remember waking up in my uncle's bed and freaking out and being driven home in the back of my parents' car, laying in the back. That wasn't enough. Um, I was drinking by the next week. And why the seizure? The results of detoxing both off, of those off of them, and right. I cold turkeyed the pills, which you're not supposed to do. But hey, I'm invincible, you know, whatever. And uh, but you you know you would think that's a light bulb of like something in your life's gonna gotta change. Not only have you already been fired twice, like your health is now like really being messed up, in a really shocking way in front of an audience. That was the first point where I admitted I needed help. So me and my parents with the knowledge we knew from my dad going to centers we started investigating and stuff and we decided to send me to a christ-based recovery center up in north carolina i drove up to north carolina drinking to check myself in i stayed for two weeks after two weeks all the guys were outside doing manual labor and i told the guy that there was an insurance card in my truck that i needed to refill some prescriptions for my diabetes which obviously seems like a valid thing at that point, my keys were locked in their in their manager's office, and uh, I got my keys, got in my truck, packed about 75% of my stuff within, I don't know, like a minute and a half, and I was gone. First place I stopped at was a gas station, and I picked up a six-pack, and I drove from uh, outside of Raleigh-Durham down to Augusta, Georgia, finished that six-pack, checked into a hotel, bought another six-pack, and did the same thing for the next, you know, several years. and. You know, all the while still trying to manage type 1 diabetes through all this, the fact that I didn't die living alone with diabetes and the amount that I was drinking is an absolute miracle. There's no doubt in my mind about that. God well, and that was, goes back to you saying you lying in the hospital bed initially yeah, yeah, learning yeah. about diabetes <laughs> and saying God has a purpose. The longer I'm sober and the more I learn about diabetes and health and wellness, like in general, like I should have died several times. I got another job back in accounting in that kind of realm, and I started working my way back up. And I still could not stay sober for more than like four or five days. And I still wasn't doing recovery. During all this, my mom found out she had cancer. I'm still, you know, heavily drinking. I start taking off time from work, telling my boss that I'm going to take my mom to see her cancer doctor or driving her to, you know, Mayo Clinic or something. And all I'm doing is going home for three days and drinking myself into absolute oblivion. Alcohol was my savior. I worshiped it. That was a really low point. So how is your mom, mom recovering from cancer? How is she battling cancer while you're also battling something else? Yeah, so my mom is about as perfect as a person can be. She has a very big heart and obviously very patient, putting up with my dad and his alcoholism and then mine. So my mom's actually now in her third go round of chemotherapy and stuff and it's always been kind of stepping down and uh, so she's doing wonderful i had been able and this was in 2015 16 17 i could go a full week of work and not drink and i was getting plugged in with recovery but then the weekend would come and i would be bored and lonely and you know i'm 30 32 by now i'm not married i'm in my mind really beating myself up and then it would all start again and it would last for a couple of weeks or a month, and I would be full of self-loathing, embarrassment. And then I got to a point where I had cleaned up my act for a little over five months. 
I had went on a fishing trip to Augusta, Georgia with two of my close friends. There was no alcohol involved on the trip. Came back home. My friend dropped me off. And I remember thinking, sure would be nice to have a, a drink while I watch the Falcons. Red flag, red flag. There's a saying in recovery that says, the man takes a drink. The drink takes a drink. The drink takes the man. Oh, wow. And um, That's that true. was Sunday at like around 4.30. And my next vivid, clear memory is the following Friday night at like 8 p.m. when my dad was in my room yelling at me. And I remember reading an email at like 3.30 or 4 in the morning on a Wednesday telling me I'd lost my job again. That was the third job. When I saw that, I remember early in the morning, I was like, thank God something has happened and I don't have to swallow my pride and admit I need help, which is what I really needed to do. My parents would have written me off a long time ago, both financially and more relationally, but being a type 1 diabetic, they just couldn't do that. I'm glad they didn't, obviously. So from there, we started looking into treatment centers again and uh, decided to stay in Macon because, like I said, I really I really had become plugged in. I loved it. I was getting the message. I didn't want to be uprooted when I was really making headway, even though I had just made this huge error again. Like, I had been sober for five and a half months, and then I had this really trivial thought on a Sunday, and my next memory is a Friday? That's really scary. And that was the first time I'd ever been that long sober and really understood how cunning, baffling, and powerful alcohol is an addiction. Um, Because even though I had stayed away from it for that time period, as soon as it got in my body, it once again was my master, lord, and savior, essentially. I went into treatment in Macon, which I now work at, which is crazy. That is wild. Actually, we're, I actually work in the same building. That is um, wild the way God did that. Yeah. So as I had said at the beginning, like I know that when I was 14 that when I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior that it wasn't fake or done before I really understood the gospel and such. But when I was in these years of addiction, like I would be laying there, you know, shaking, sweating in my own vomit, upset stomach, and just loathing myself and hating everything about my life and just wondering, like, there's not a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ died for me. And this is the kind of stuff that, like, he went to the cross for this kind of stuff. I don't feel it, and I obviously don't believe it, so either one of us is full of it or it's all fake and I've just been forgotten because I'm a horrible human being I keep repeating this over and over and over. There's just no hope for me. I remember a couple of times where I would, like, take too much insulin on purpose and hope I, like, wouldn't wake up. But then I would always freak out and go eat a bunch of food. And I'm obviously very glad that I did that. But, like, I mean, that's just horrifying and another example of God being there for me and watching out for me. One of our counselors who was also an addict, she was talking to her class And she started going over the disease concept, and she was saying, you know, hey, you guys obviously have done a lot of things that you shouldn't have done, and consequences are consequences, and you have to answer for them. But you're also really sick, both physically, spiritually, and mentally. And I kid you not, that day, it was like shackles flew off me, and I'd heard the gospel again for the first time. I knew I was sick, and I needed help. You know, God had this whole time had his hand down for me, and I'd you know, seen people come into my life who wanted to help me and who, who, who had loved me and no one had yet completely written me off. They had you know, responsibly distanced themselves for well-being. That utter self-loathing and hatred and doubt in what Jesus Christ did for me was all eradicated when I processed the simple message of 
Morgan Dill, you are gravely sick emotionally, mentally, and physically, and you need help. Now, obviously, I had a lot to work through on all three of those avenues, but I'll be forever grateful for that counselor sharing that with me because it freed me up to open up back my relationship with Jesus Christ. It took a lot of the, the burden off because Jesus Christ took that burden on the cross that day. I finished up that treatment center. Two months later, I was interviewing for jobs and actually ended up getting a job at this same hospital. I'm still there. I drank one more time on a Friday or a Saturday night. I had my feelings hurt over a girl. I just let it get to my head, and I didn't practice the principles that I learned. And um, I picked up some alcohol one Friday. I drank, and I had learned enough at that point to know what was going to happen if I left the house again that weekend and went and bought more. And by the grace of God and the program of AA and the things I had learned at that point, God kept me still. And that was uh, the weekend of February 3rd, 2018, so I haven't had a, a drink since then. I was playing golf with a buddy of mine about three months ago who's uh, an addict too, and he's in recovery. And I don't remember what we were talking about, but we were just standing there, we were like playing golf on like a Sunday with a clear mind, a clear conscience. We were like, it doesn't get better than this. I don't know if we need to get bigger dreams, but in our mind, like we've made it. It just doesn't get any better than where we are right now. No, that's pretty huge. After all that, I started getting back involved with church more. I really, really got into um, nutrition and exercise. But another thing I've always learned is my biggest weakness can become my greatest asset to help other people. Well, and, and I think from the weakness, from the addiction, you being able to talk about it is a huge step. For the longest time, I was so dishonest with everybody that I loved. The way that makes me feel now sober-minded is just, it's not worth saving my own skin. I don't care what situation it's, it is. I try and be as honest as possible. And so what do you do at that hospital? Finance. Okay. I'm non-clinical, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know if you helped others with diabetes. No, or but if I, me and Brittany were talking about last week, if we had our dream last week or the week before, she was like, what would you do if you didn't have to earn money doing it? And I said, I would help people with diabetes type 1 and 2. The longer I'm sober, I realized that my drinking was a coping mechanism to deal with the not having control of my health 100% because with diabetes, you give up a lot of control. Like I can do the same thing every day and every day get different results, which is really frustrating. But now I use exercise and I'm really heavily involved with social media with uh, groups uh, to just air it out. Like you're not alone. You're never alone. I don't care what you have. Um, You're not alone. And And that was another uh, reason I wanted to start the podcast Yeah, was I wanted everybody has a story. And not one story is alike. However, every single story shows that we're together, that we're not alone. Yes, I completely agree. And another really important thing that helped me get on the path of sobriety, I started to open myself up to the community of other recovering alcoholics and addicts. Like I would stay 15 minutes after a meeting. I got phone numbers and started hanging out with people on Saturdays. My life started to change when I started to become a part of society again and participate in the suffering of, you know, being human or whatever you want to call it. Like, I'm glad you brought that up because it was a super pivotal um, moment in hindsight of when I started to become better. And I think quarantine kind of messed that up for a lot of people. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that we can't really be social or it's more difficult to be social. So a lot of those that are recovering struggled. Yeah, I've I've seen a lot of news articles and stuff about kind of addiction and its ugly head during COVID and, you know, rates going up and stuff. So um, how has that been for you? I have not had a direct thought about drinking since 
probably May of 2018. It was something we preach is, you know, one day at a time. What's crazy about, like, when you're in active addiction is, like, you know, people see it. People know something's wrong, but my parents saw it. Uh, my friends saw it. The way I interact and react with the world now, I am a completely different human being. I still really struggle with my tongue a lot. Brittany has helped me with that. So then she and I met on eHarmony, and as she had mentioned, like, I put on there I didn't want nobody to drink, and she put on hers that she didn't want nobody to drink. So we went from swimming in a sea to basically just two people in a bathtub looking for each other. <laughs> we first met, and uh, our first date was at a Panera and Make, and she was on her way back from visiting a friend outside of Savannah. Obviously, I'm on eHarmony. I paid money. Like, I'm being intentional. I'm 33 at this point. I finally got my life together, I think. And so I was like, hey, first date, I'm an alcoholic. Here's my story. Probably with a lot less detail than this podcast, but I was just like, this is crazy. But it was a really good, clear indicator that, like, this is, you're doing the right thing. And um, one other really important thing in my recovery, especially the first six months, was every single day, my motto was, do the next right thing. And that might mean going to the gym and walking on the treadmill, because I had a lot of physical I got to about 245, 250 at one point with type 1 diabetes. So I was pretty out of shape and unhealthy. So make sure you go to your meetings. Make sure you call your sponsor. Make sure you communicate with your parents because they're still worried about you. That kind of stuff. And then you got married during COVID. Yeah, and then she gave the story about the COVID thing. That was really challenging. Right. But I did lose my temper a few times about of it, all of it. But like where I'm at now with what I've learned about life, that's life. There's somebody else within a half mile that's got it way worse. It's been a trying beginning to a marriage, but like it's been beautiful and it's been perfect. And so we always end the podcast on a very happy note of encouragement with happy trails to you. So out of everything that you've been through and looking back, what was the most encouraging quote? Can I have two? No. Yes, you can have okay. two. <laughs> so my favorite Bible verse is uh, Luke twenty three forty two or 43. I can't remember, which is sad because I have it tattooed on my back. 20-ish. But it's when um, Jesus is on the cross and he says to the uh, criminal who says, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus replies, truly, truly, I say to you that today you will be with me in paradise. That is the person in scripture I identify with. I'm on the cross. I know I deserve to be there. And all I have to do is ask for his grace. The word paradise in that scripture have always like just caught my attention. The other overarching motto in my life is the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I use that in literally every possible situation in my life. Not every day, but several times a week. Even during coronavirus. Especially during coronavirus. <laughs> Especially during 2020. Subscribe. Right. I guess that's it, guys. Bye.